Home base is where you are safest. Home base is where you want to be. This basic idea guides many a children's game, whether it is sharks and minnows in the pool or that parental monster chasing you around the playground. Getting to home base, getting to the other side, the top of the tower, is the key. Both the Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy and the reading from Romans chapter 8 this morning describe the good life in terms of position, getting into the promised land, living in this place of abundance and plenty, a place of joy. In Romans 8, the language is a little more metaphorical, but the good life is described in, the terms, in terms of the realm of the Spirit, this position of life and peace, this experience of safety and abundance, home base. As we heard those two passages, I wonder what, if any, longing they may have provoked in you. Many of us are not from this part of the world or have family far flung. Is there a desire for an experience of belonging that we've not yet had? Perhaps we come with a sense of lack and there's a desire for a place of abundance and plenty to live life in the realm of peace. For those in Christ, entrusting themselves to him, baptized in him, taking Jesus at his word, the simple truth is that in a remarkable way, you already are at home base. You're at home and have received all that that entails. I'd like to unpack this simple truth, nuance it a little bit, trusting that the Holy Spirit might work in and through our longings and desires this day. By grouping our thoughts this morning under three headings, headings that roughly correspond with the sections of our reading from Romans 8. First, a new way of being connected to verses 1 through 4. Second, the work that is being done, verses 5 to 11. And third, the work that is ours, verses 12 and 13. But first, a new way of being. And I'd like to do something different here, different and I hope fruitful, and tell something of a rather long story. So I hope this works. Some of you will know that over the last few months I've been reading this book, African American Readings of Paul by the New Testament scholar Lisa Bowens. I've referenced it a few times over these, this journey through the book of Romans. And Dr. Bowens has done remarkable work in gathering the reflections, the readings of various black American Christians readings of the writings of Paul in the New Testament over the last few centuries. And the book's important, both because these readings have long been overlooked by Christians, by the church in the United States, and it's important because I'm convinced that these faithful readers of Paul have much to instruct us in, as they held fast to the Christian faith as aliens and outcasts in this country. As we seek to hold fast to be faithful, they have a great deal, I think, to teach us. One story above all in Bowen's book has stood out to me, and it's the story of this man named John G.A. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I hope I am. It's J-E-A. And he was, like many of the readers in Dr. Bowen's book, a slave. He lived in New York State, end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. And as you might expect, as a slave, he was born into horrific conditions, terrible conditions, under an enslaver who professed the Christian faith. Very naturally, 
The connection between religion, between the Christian faith and his mistreatment meant that John despised, distrusted the Christian faith in his early years. He describes later on how he thought of himself as an enemy of God, despised by God, hostile to God in the language of Romans. That is until this remarkable and radical conversion experience where there was this combination for G.A., as he describes, of conviction of sin, a sense of his own sinfulness, even despite his oppressed state, as well as this sense of the grace of Jesus and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. He says they were powerfully made real to him. You see, just as G.A. came to long for freedom, as we might expect, he also longed for liberty from this body of sin and death, as Paul describes it. What G.A. explains is this kind of classical evangelical crisis conversion, and it is beautiful. But as you might expect, the story gets complicated from there. His enslaver is aghast at this transformative encounter with Jesus, especially when G.A. begins to, to preach the gospel, the true gospel, to his enslaver, to his enslaver's wife, to the whole household there. Among other things, G.A. proclaims his own earthly freedom, connected to his identity as one who's in Christ. He's like, I am a child of God. I am free, and I will be free here and now. G.A.'s enslaver and other authorities in the area, taking advantage of the fact of his illiteracy, he could not read, began to twist the words of Scripture, twist the words of the Bible, to support their own authority. They're like, this is why this is justified. And he's unable to read. He's unable to respond. In this heartbreaking scene, G.A. describes himself literally holding the Bible up to his ear and asking the Lord to please speak, pleading. But he hears nothing. The book talks to the slaveholder, he believes, but not to him. The spirit's for the oppressor, but not for him. And this is where things get really crazy in this story. That very night, G.A. describes falling asleep and receiving this vision, this visit from Jesus, this radiant, magnificent Jesus. And Jesus comes to him and says, take and read. Read the Bible. And G.A. in the vision is like, I can't read. Like, I can't do this. I grapple with this. And the vision is frustratingly incomplete. He wakes up, and it's not been resolved. This is the part that is, like, hard to fathom. G.A. awakens, picks up the Bible, and he can read the Bible. He can read the words of Scripture. He's brought before his enslaver, and the enslaver hands him his own Bible, says, prove it. He reads it aloud with understanding. They give him another book, non-biblical book, he can't read it. This miracle, because of the laws of New York State at that time, lead immediately to his freedom. And eventually, the fact that he can read scriptures and he learns to read more leads to this vocation that G.A. has of preaching the gospel throughout the United States, around the world. He becomes this international evangelist. It leads to him writing his own life history in this text that Henry Louis Gates and others of our time celebrate. 
Now, I have a charismatic background. Some of you know that. I grew up in charismatic circles, and I believe strongly that the Holy Spirit continues to move among his people powerfully in ways that we should expect but so often do not. And I don't really have a category for this kind of story. It is remarkable. Reading it, I was like guffawing. I almost couldn't comprehend it. It's miraculous. Yet the full miracle that GA's life, that our passage in Romans 8 speaks to this morning, is not, in fact, the miracle of literacy, as remarkable as it is. That's a small part of it. Rather, both GA's life and Paul's words point to the miracle of new life, of life free from condemnation, based on the transformative life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as the true miracle. What G.A. discovered and Paul declares is that there's no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. That is, those who are in Christ, who set their faith on him, have a new way of being. In his life story, G.A. describes himself as at home in heaven, rooted in heaven, living on the earth. And because of that identity at home in heaven, it transforms his earthly life. This is the miracle that Romans 8 speaks to. To be free from sinful striving, as his life demonstrates, even in the midst of suffering and injustice, with an identity based and made secure with Christ. At home, in a way that you and I are powerless to secure for ourselves. Because of the power of sin, as Paul describes. What John G.A.'s life demonstrates is this rootedness in Christ. A connection to God the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit working in his life in this miraculous way. Raising him up, even in death-dealing circumstances. That promise is for you. That is the promise of life with no condemnation. For some of us, I think that language of no condemnation might feel a little bit inert, not potent. The sense of guilt that might have existed for previous generations or marked particular cultures is perhaps less like normative for us. I remember years ago working with a guy landscaping who talked about being approached by someone who told him, Jesus died for your sins, just kind of like drive-by evangelism. And this guy's response was, well, I didn't ask him to. We might not be so direct or crass about it, but I think we understand that. But where we may not have this natural sense of guilt that's so often associated with the gospel, I think we are often marked by a profound sense of shame. Perhaps of not doing wrong, but of, in some fundamental way, being wrong. And our efforts, our striving in life are so often about overcoming that, proving our worth, demonstrating our goodness, our abilities. Just this week, I was listening to a talk about the performative nature of Instagram and Twitter, the way they render all of life a performance, every experience to be uploaded, a way of proving significance and worth. Like, I'm no huge fan of social media, but social media is not actually the problem. Like That is a human problem. And the reality that Paul declares in Romans 8 
is that for those who are in Christ, such performance, such striving is no longer necessary. God has dealt with what is shameful and insufficient in you by sending his own son, Paul says, in the likeness of sinful flesh, in the weakness and unworthiness that we all experience, to condemn sin. Sin that rendered you insufficient, that is shameful, is condemned and crucified with Jesus Christ. And he rises and it does not. He is fulfilled, as Paul says, the requirements of God's law. This is something we see in the life of Jesus. He lived this good, this true, this radiantly beautiful life. Something we all celebrate. And now by the Holy Spirit, Paul says, what is true of Jesus is true of you. The goodness, the truth, the beauty of his life are rendered unto you. They're yours. Such that God sees You, regards you with the worthiness, the magnificence of Jesus' life. He fulfilled what was required. This was God's great love for you, that he did this on your behalf. He looks on you and says, not condemned, enough, beloved. That is your home base. That is your new way of being, whatever the circumstances of your life, at home, at home in heaven, there is no more secure place to be. But the beauty of what Paul describes in Romans 8 is that this is more than just a legal fiction, more than just a pronouncement over us. That is what John G.A.'s life, in fact, bears out. It's not just that God considers us free and alive in Jesus but that actually by the Holy Spirit, by his power, we are made free. We are made alive. This is the second heading, the work that is being done. In verses 5 through 11, there's this contrast that emerges, a contrast between a life oriented toward the flesh and the life of the Spirit, between life in the realm of the flesh and in the realm of the Spirit. As we've seen in other weeks, this is positional language. In Christ, you are situated in a different place. You've been transferred, as one writer has described it. We all probably have had that experience working in a company, in an organization. You're with one team, and then you get transferred. You got used to the policies, procedures, the culture, however healthy or unhealthy it was, of this one organizational body, and then you're transferred into something new, and there's new stuff that defines life there. The idea here is that a life lived in the realm of the flesh had certain policies, certain procedures, certain culture, and all of it was governed by sin, oriented towards sinful desires, and produced nothing good. It's barren. Life in the realm of the flesh, Paul says, is still born. It's hostile to God. It's unable to please him. It leads to death in the broadest possible terms. You hear a phrase like the desires of the flesh, and we might immediately think of like base physical desires, right? But the idea here when Paul talks about the flesh is life that is purely human in its orientation, that's cut off from any sense of God, removed from concern for God's purposes or desires. 
So a life entirely devoted to finding ultimate meaning through career success is life in the realm of the flesh. A life rooted in finding meaning in business or, I don't know, just to pick something random, church planning might well be described as pursuing the desires of the flesh when such a pursuit is rooted in an exclusively this world human orientation. That's the realm of sinful nature. And it cannot produce the life, the peace for which we made, the home for which we desire. We cannot find home in the flesh. In contrast, Paul says, life in the spirit is different. It's oriented toward God. It's guided by his purposes, by his life-giving voice, by the leading of the Spirit, and it produces. It's fruitful. It produces works, life, and peace. It's abundant. Think of John G.A.'s post-conversion life when you think of life in the realm of the Spirit. It is fruitful and abundant. He has tons of kids. But more than that, he proclaims the gospel. He makes the Lord known. He experiences the liberating freedom of the Holy Spirit. The language that Paul uses here speaks of this settled dwelling of God's Spirit with those who are in Christ. That is the same Spirit that hovered over the waters in creation, that did the work of creation, that from time to time would rest on kings or prophets. The same spirit that breathed new life, that worked the miracle of resurrection in Jesus' broken body, now lives in you, lives in those who are in Christ. You cannot get closer than in. That is how near God's life-giving, resurrecting spirit is to you. The wonder-working Holy Spirit resides in your life. So that even as your body fails, and it will fail, as your body decays and breaks down, even as the world and you yourself seem so much under the power of sin, God's Spirit is working, working to bring life and peace. We're in the middle of ordinary time. That's the season of the church calendar, and the color is green. And ordinary time is the longest unbroken season in the church calendar And it's kind of boring. There's not much that happens during ordinary time. That's because there's not much sometimes that feels like it's happening in our lives. It's ordinary. But the promise of the color of green for ordinary time is that even when it feels like things are stable, things are not happening, the Spirit of God is working, is bearing fruit. That is the reality of your life, whether There's dramatic stuff happening or not. The Spirit of God is working, bringing life and peace. Some of you have the experience in age or just poor health of your body betraying you. Others of you have a sense that you are so compromised by desires and appetites you wish you could change. And suffering and sin, they're a real component of human life. The reality of aging is unavoidable. But for those who are in Christ... The hope we have is that even in suffering, even in decay, even in struggle with sin, the Spirit of God that resurrected Jesus is giving life to our bodies, is giving life to us, bringing about peace, bringing about resurrection. 
Rest in this truth. The Spirit is working. So we pray, we hope for healing and restoration. And the Spirit does miraculous things as we saw in this story. But whatever outcome, the promise we have is the Spirit is always working on our behalf, gracing every situation. The point of Romans 8 verses 5 through 11 is not that you should live more according to the Spirit, though you, of course, should. The point of these verses is not work for you. The point is that if you have put your trust in Jesus, if you have been baptized in him, you have been transferred into this new realm, this new way of being, in which God's restorative and creative spirit is inevitably working. You think of that tree root that's slowly, inexorably pushing through the concrete until new life emerges, blossoms forth. That is where you live. That is what the Spirit is doing in and among you. Yet that is not to say that we have no part to play. We have an obligation, as Paul writes in verse 12. And that brings us in closing to the work that is ours, this third heading. There's no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. You are in the life-giving realm of the Spirit. Now live like it. That is the thrust of the concluding verses of our reading. Live into this new way of being. Live in line with the resurrected life and peace that are yours now and will be yours in full. Become who you are in Jesus. Think of that transfer idea, right? You, you leave one team and you go to another. There are new policies, procedures, new culture to learn. If you continue on in the way you previously did, you're not going to function as you should there. And it's not that you're not a part of the team. It's that you're not living into the fact that you are a part of this team, that you have been transferred into something new. What Paul is describing here is cooperation with who you are, cooperation with the Holy Spirit, with the eternal life that is yours in Jesus. Paul is saying there is a realm and a way of life that leads to death. And you no longer are there. You're in this realm, this way of life that leads to life. So choose life. Choose this way. Live as one who belongs to Christ. This is your obligation, your debt. John Barclay, a New Testament scholar, has written that the gift of the gospel, the gift of Jesus Christ, is unconditional. It's given freely. But it is not unconditioned. And what he means is that something is expected from the gift. Something is expected to arise from those who have received the gift. A certain way of life is expected from the Israelites as they enter into the promised land. There's a way of life that's becoming of this new realm. Something is expected of those who receive the gift. This is what Paul is after. Not earning, not paying a debt. It's not that kind of debt, but responding to the gift of the new life you've received, the gift of Jesus, condemnation for your own. That is your work. Remember years ago, I borrowed a friend's bike, and they had particular instructions for me on how to use the bike. It was this gift. I needed it. I couldn't get around without it. But part of the giving of the bike was like, it's a road bike. Don't take it on the trail. Don't hop curbs with it, or you're going to destroy this bike. Receiving the gift involved this certain condition, 
use, live in line with the gift that's been given. This is what Paul is after here. You are to live as one who's freed, freed from the realm of flesh and sin, to live as though the realm of the Spirit is your home, to live a continual yes to the Holy Spirit, and a no to those appetites, those desires that bring death. This idea of saying no to sinful nature or mortifying our flesh, to use classic terms, can so easily devolve into moralism and legalism, what it can be called the deadly bees, right? Be more holy, be better, try harder. But in the context of this passage, what Paul is describing is this sense of cooperation, release to God's life-giving spirit, saying yes to the spirit that brings life, peace, and true flourishing. I would encourage you to the simple practice of offering your body, as David talked about a few weeks ago, offering yourself each day, Holy Spirit, the gift of this day, the gift of your presence, what would you have for me this day? That is the posture that Paul is after here. And that posture brings rich, abundant, overflowing life. That's the promise that connects with putting the misdeeds of the flesh to death. It's a promise that so overwhelms anything our sinful nature might offer. Yes, there's debt. Yes, there's this obligation for those in Christ. But far beyond that, there is the promise of new life. A promise that can inspire our work, our saying yes to the Spirit, our denying of ourselves, our putting to death those misdeeds. Live who you are in Christ. Live where you are in the realm of the Spirit. My son was playing baseball this week at the North Austin Optimist Fields over there in North Central Austin, just off Lamar and Anderson. And there's a field there where that they were playing on that's been built with the support of some local business many years ago as a spot for, for kids and youth to enjoy the game of baseball, to, to be kids. On the scoreboard, below the kind of where the score is, below the sponsors, there's this slogan that I liked. It said, safe at home. That is the promise for you this morning in Christ. In him, there is this new way of being, free of condemnation, with true freedom, safe at home. And in him, in that place, there is good work being done. In you, by the Holy Spirit, life, peace, resurrection, new creation, that is and will be your true home. And in him, there is good work for you to do. Life in the Spirit living now in light of the home that will more fully be yours and mine in the end, that has been and is being prepared for you. Home base, life and resurrection. Let us live like it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.